Welcome everybody. My name is Alexander Greb. I am the Customer Advisory Lead S4HANA Strategy at SAP and you're listening to the SAP Experts Podcast. COVID-19 for sure was the big topic of 2020, but given we get rid of it thanks to the upcoming vaccines, there's one other big challenge awaiting mankind, climate change. We have to reduce harming emissions. And this is accomplished most efficiently and effectively via facts. But you can manage what you do not measure. That's where the SAP initiative Climate 21 comes into place, to make emissions measurable and manageable. Global Vice President and Innovation Evangelist Tom Raftery is with his Climate 21 podcast one of the masterminds of this new kind of management philosophy. That's why I'm blessed to have him as guest to discuss with him all about the initiative itself, how enterprises have to be managed in times of global warming, and what strategies and best practices can help to master the big challenge of the 21st century. All of that in this episode of the SAP Experts Podcast. Welcome, Tom. Alex, thanks for inviting me. Tom, you are one of the spearheads of an SAP initiative called Climate 21. Can you give us a 360 overview and tell us what's behind that topic? Sure. Um, so first of all, I am not one of the spearheads of the Climate 21 initiative. I want to see SAP. you as one because you're you. very visible. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah, that, that's very different. Um, I, I, I have started the Climate 21 podcast, yes. Uh, and I have another podcast as well, uh, in, in which I, uh, earlier this year, brought on Toby Croucher, who's now the solution manager for Climate 21, to talk about Climate 21. And what is Climate 21? Well, Climate 21 is an initiative by SAP to allow our customers to calculate, uh, report, and reduce their climate emissions. And note I say climate emissions, not carbon emissions. It's it's climate emissions. Uh, it's, it's an important Because carbon is not, not the only not bad the only, thing that we put correct. out. Yeah. Correct. You know, it, it can be any of the, the climate affecting emissions. Methane is another big yeah. one, for example. Mm -hmm. And of course, for a lot of our oil and gas um, or even our utilities customers, that would be a climate emission, for example, that they'd be emitting. Um, and why is it called Climate 21? Well, the 21 doesn't refer to the year 2021. It refers to the 21st century, which is, you know, something that might not be obvious uh, from the branding, but It, this is a not a not a year long problem. This is a, a century long thing that we will be um, battling. I have to say, yeah. Um, the idea of the Climate Twenty One project comes from our our idea or our statement that we are. Um, enablers and exemplars, or exemplars and enablers, whichever way you want to put it. And the exemplars, you know, says that as a company, we emit around 300,000 tons of carbon a year, and that number is falling year on year. And, you know, we're doing good, we're taking big strides to reduce our carbon emissions, and that's great, and they'd be significantly reduced this year because there'd be very little executive travel, which is a big proportion of our emissions, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, we are exemplars. We do a hell of a lot to get our emissions down, and that's great. However, if we reduce our carbon emissions, let's say we reduce them 10% this year. Well, this year is exceptional, but 10% in 2019, that would be you know, going from 330, or sorry, from 300 to 270. So that's a reduction of 30,000 tons. That's nothing. That's nothing in the scheme of things. That's nothing. It's great. But in the scheme of global emissions, that's nothing. On the other hand, enablers, this other side of the message, our customers are responsible for about 85% of global emissions. If we can reduce their emissions by one-tenth of 1%, that's orders of magnitude greater than the 30,000 that we managed to reduce our own. You know, So it's great that we're exemplars. That's fantastic. But the enabler side has far more potential to have an effect on the world. And this is why we're pursuing the Climate 21 initiative, because we are able, we have that lever where we can make an enormous change uh, or we can, we can 
enable our customers to make big changes in their emissions. And that's huge. And that's a big responsibility and one we're obviously taking quite seriously. How do we do it? Well, uh, we, we create a layer and not, not, not a technical person, so I'm, I'm making this up as I go along. <laughs> Me either, so. <laughs> <laughs> we, we create a layer in the business processes where we enable our customers to calculate for every business process they do, what's the carbon emission associated, or sorry, what's the climate emission associated with that individual business process. And for some of them, uh, there, there will be APIs built into this, so they'll be able to bring in data from outside. So, you know, if it is a retailer, for example, they'll be able to bring in the uh, emissions uh, data coming from their utility company. Just bring that in through an API and suddenly bang, there it is associated with all their retail stores and, you know, all et, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So our customers will be able to calculate and, as I say, report on their emissions but the, the real, I think, key to this is opening up the visibility of your supply chain and seeing the carbon emissions associated with that. Because when you start to see the emissions associated with your supply chain, you can then make emissions-based purchasing decisions. And right there, that's where you can have a huge effect on your own carbon footprint. Um, in the Climate 21 podcast, uh, one of my guests is a guy called Lucas Joppa. And Lucas is the Chief Environmental Officer from Microsoft. He, I'll be publishing the interview with him next week. So that's, uh, today is the 10th of December we're recording. Uh, next week, it'll be, it, the podcast goes out every Wednesday. We, we will go live more or less parallelly. So we go live on Monday. So when you listen to this podcast now, and today is a Monday as when you're a listener, you just have to wait two more days. Correct. It, be able to it'll be when, Wednesday the 16th, I'll be publishing the interview mm -hmm. with Lucas. And one of the amazing, well, Microsoft are really kind of a gold standard in this. Um, and, I, you know, I've said that. I even said that to, to the uh, exec board member from Shell, who I, who I had on the podcast uh, yesterday, so, so December the, the 9th. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're really a gold standard in this for what they've been doing in this space. It's really impressive. Uh, they, they instituted an internal carbon price in 2012 for every part of their organization. So if you were buying office chairs in 2012 for a new office, you were kidding out. The carbon price associated with the manufacture and transportation of those carbon chairs was included. And so when you were purchasing, you were aware of the carbon implications and you made your purchasing decisions accordingly. And they've been doing this for eight years now. And they've they've brought it out. It was initially just for their scope one and scope two mm -hmm. emissions. And now they've brought it out to their scope three emissions. And they are pushing it out to their suppliers and saying, for all our RFPs, you need to be able to show us your carbon emissions associated with everything you do right out to scope three for you. And so they are already instituting this. And what we in SAP are doing is we are going to help our customers do likewise. So that's that's big picture view of what uh, carbon or sorry, climate 21 is and uh, a little side note about the, the, the podcast that I'm doing. So as far as I've learned from you until now, climate 21 is is a part of a software. I yep. assume it's part of our ERP. Is it yep. yeah. so S for it, HANA it, only or also implementable for ECC? Uh, S for HANA is it's my understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's my understanding. And it, um, it, so Climate 21 is like a lot of the things we have on SAP. It's a, it's a brand. Uh, and it has associated products which fall under that brand. Mm -hmm. uh, the first uh, product that we have, which is uh, directly associated to Climate 21, is the Carbon Analytics Dashboard. Mm -hmm. And we have rolled that out to customers already. There are other products that we have which have been 
brought into the Climate 21 fold some of the EHS products that we already have, mm -hmm. for example. So it's it's a combination of existing products that have been brought into the Climate 21 family of products and new products like the Carbon Dashboard, uh, which and there will be more products similar to that. There's also, uh, and this was something I, the, the, the inaugural podcast I had was with uh, Thomas Saresig, so I, I published that a couple of weeks ago. And I asked him, you know, about this and the the whole idea of Climate 21 is we'll make some of it available to all of our customers who are on S4. Uh, and then we will expose more to people who purchase things like the carbon uh, dashboard. But at, at a base level of functionality, that will be available to all our S4 customers. So we're, we're building it into S4 that way so people can see basic functionality of it and then they can purchase more. So the first step, as far as I've learned is transparency because I think everybody of us knows and this is a ask any controller if you want to manage it you got to measure it first yeah. because otherwise yeah exactly otherwise you have no no chance in in steering anything so I think yeah. this at first is, is a really important step then of course it, it shall not be compromisable so it does not really help if you maybe you 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 measure the part um, when like of your production, for example, but you leave out big bunches of the emissions you are producing, for example, with, like you said, executive travels, or mm -hmm. you send your whole sales force to Hawaii to celebrate things, and you do not measure this. Yeah, this does not really help because you're cheating yourself. So is this something which really goes into every and each activity your um, your enterprise is doing, or is something is this something which really just is limited to where the ERP is happening because it's not happening everywhere. Sure, it, it, it needs to be everything. Now, it, that's up to individual company, companies to implement mm -hmm. uh, and to report on, but it's climate emissions reporting is becoming similar to financial reporting in terms of its rigor. It's not there yet, but it's, it's going that direction and it will get to that direction. Uh, SAP, when we report our climate emissions, we have them audited by, I, I, the last time I looked, it was KPMG. Mm -hmm. it, it may be someone else uh, at the moment, or, or it may still be KPMG, I'm not sure, but that's the point. For your emissions to be taken seriously, they have to be uh, auditable and transparent, uh, you know, to your point, because in the same way you can hide financial transactions, you can also hide, sure. you know, yeah. climate emissions, and uh, that is cheating uh, in in both scenarios. So they have to be auditable. They have to be fully auditable. And uh, as I say, in SAP, uh, SAP have had auditable um, emissions reporting since before I joined, and I joined in 2016. And I remember reading some of the reports as far back as 2012, and they were audited then. So, um, you know, that's that's taken for granted in larger companies and in many uh, industries. Uh, so many industries are well ahead in terms of carbon reporting and emissions reporting uh, because it's mandated. Uh, and because they are in emissions trading schemes, where obviously when it's in an emissions trading scheme, it is a financial instrument. So it's very heavily regulated. So in many industries, you know, this is taken for granted. And, you know, if you think of some of the larger emitters, the likes of the steel companies, the cement companies, the airlines, the utilities, the oil and gas companies, they're very far down the road of carbon and emissions reporting already. Yeah, because they, they are more or less in the center of it. And of course, in the center of criticism, which doesn't well. mean that they are automatically the baddies. The baddies are often somewhere where you do not expect them. But you, you mentioned um, Microsoft has a chain, uh, chief environmental officer, so yeah. uh, which quite reflects when you measure something, of course, you need somebody who cares. When do you care for it? When you got when you have incentives in a certain way, when you are measured, your performance is measured after certain KPIs. So a, a chief environmental officer obviously is. Um, we at SAP, we have head-offs for basically everything, what you can imagine, but we do not have one yet. So who is in those cases where you do not have this really distinctive person with a di distinctive task for it, who is um, more or less the, the receiver for this kind of KPIs? 
is it the CFO in that case or? So in, in SAP, it's Daniel Schmidt, I suspect. Mm -hmm. Daniel is our chief sustainability officer. And to my knowledge, and I stand to be corrected in this, I think Daniel reports into uh, the CFO. Uh, so he's okay. in the, mm -hmm. the, the CFO organization. That's that's my understanding. Uh, we can we can check that and delete this from the podcast if I'm wrong. <laughs> but um, but yeah, we Daniel is the chief nothing. sustainability officer. <laughs> so the, the, this this is our equivalent to the environmental officer. Yes and no. Um, so the chief environmental officer in Microsoft has a much broader uh, remit, oh. I suspect, than than we have in in SAP. Uh, for now. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned the carbon price mm -hmm. that was uh, rolled out in 2012. That carbon price, the money collected went to Lucas's budget. Mm -hmm. So the chief environmental officer has this massive budget, which all comes from the carbon uh, price that they rolled out to every single transaction in the organization everything from purchasing pens through to running events, through to airline travel, through to the buses that they use to bring their uh, employees to work, everything, absolutely everything is priced and, and has a carbon price. And a, a, a carbon price that's on the scale that's going upwards. Uh, you know, so, uh, and that's where, like I said, Lucas's budget comes from. And so it allows him to do really interesting things. Uh, they, they've done projects around um, reducing emissions of data centers, for example. Uh, they, um, they, 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 they've, they, oh, they, their, their ambitions are impressive. They are going to go what's called carbon negative uh, by 2030. Uh, so they will be uh, sucking more carbon out of the air than all of their operations are responsible for mm. by 2030. That's their aim. And then by 2050, they want to have sucked more carbon out of the air than they are responsible for emitting in all the time they've been in operation since uh, 95, no, uh, 75, 75 was when they started operations. So they, they, they want to go completely, completely car carbon negative. And that's a huge undertaking. They've set aside $1 billion to, uh, for, for an investments program because a lot of the technologies they are going to require to do this haven't been invented yet. Mm -hmm. So they've uh, they've an investment fund set aside of $1 billion to help startups and to help companies who are coming up with solutions to a lot of the problems they face. And so they're they're market making in that space. So it's it's really impressive stuff. So aside these kinds of really thrilling innovation stories, um, there's always this kind of more, let's say, pessimistic little guy sitting on my shoulder who's then, of course, asking like, this is, of course, all thrilling, but... Um, is anything of that putting up my stock price? Because we, we were talking about that role, the chief sustainability officer or chief environmental officer. Then um, if, for example, what he is doing, it costs money, obviously. Yeah, his mm -hmm. initiatives cost money. And imagine we have a difficult year. And when when you are in a kind of situation that you have to decide, will I have something of a black one or a red one in in the end of the year and these kinds of projects are more or less from a cost side deciding it i think if if a role like this is not really positioned very prominently this guy is easily overruled so how serious is are these kinds of of initiatives at the moment and when do you think if they are let's say if they they are serious of course but they are not yet something which is a 100% game changer because everybody sees this in the same importance like financial goals. When do you think we will be that far? Uh, questions like when are always hard to answer because it's... it's That's why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's no right or wrong answer yeah. because some, mm -hmm. some of these things, you know, happen in different industries mm -hmm. at different rates and different geographies mm -hmm. at different times. And, you know, the, so... I, I, I could say uh, 23rd of April, 2023, and, you know, mm. who knows? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I, I take your general point, and your, your general point is sustainability, you know, for a lot of people is a, a nice to have add-on as opposed to something that's yeah, actually important. Yeah. Um, and it, to an extent, there, there's an element of truth in that, but it's mm -hmm. a dwindling element of truth. Mm -hmm. um, it has been... 
the case in a lot of companies, but it's becoming, sustainability is becoming more of an important issue because the investment community have woken up to this big time. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm going to do another plug for the podcast. Uh, one of the uh, guests for the podcast that's coming up is uh, an EVP for JP Morgan, uh, Paul O'Connor. And he talks very much in that podcast about why the investment community have woken up to it and the implications of them waking up to it. And this is huge. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to publishing that episode. This is huge because it means companies' stock price, their share price uh, is hugely affected by how they're seen to be uh, doing on, on climate. Um, if companies are doing poorly on it, then the share price takes a knock. And uh, you have uh, large tranches of investors who are pulling money out of particularly, particularly industries or companies within those industries who are performing, performing poorly. Uh, one perfect example of this is you try and open a new coal-fired power plant today yeah. and try and approach the investment community to get investment to help you open that, you will fail. Mm. You will fail because the investment community are aware of the risks associated with coal-fired power plants, uh, carbon risks, the long-term investment risks because you know coal-fired power plants should have a lifetime, an operating lifetime of 30 to 50 years most of them will be out of operation in the next 10 years. So that's four fifths of the costs that you have to write off. That's not a good investment right mm. there. The same will happen to gas fired power plants. It might take 20 years, but again, you're not going to get 40 to 50 years out of it. So again, the investment community is moving away from mm. those and the same with anything, any sort of investment area that has emissions associated with it is becoming less and less attractive to the investment community. And so, sustainability, carbon emissions, climate emissions in general are becoming anathema to the investment community and therefore the importance of sustainability is only getting more and more concrete. So concrete the, is probably a bad word to use because <laughs> concrete, <itself laughs> concrete is huge has massive in CO2. climate emissions associated with yeah. it. <laughs> no pun intended. But, but it's interesting what you said because obviously here the investment community is far more... Um, innovative or sustainable than the other side of the spectrum, the consumer. They, they, like us, have a huge lever. You know, yeah. uh, We can help uh, through technology. Uh, we can help uh, with the transparency of emissions mm -hmm. and reporting of emissions and therefore help companies see where the issue is, to your earlier point about measuring and, and, and managing. Mm -hmm. The investment community help with money. They've yeah. got that big lever, and that's a big important one as well. I said this because last week, for example, I was um, I was meeting the um, board of a Austrian mill and mining company, and um, we were having all, all kinds of conversation, also covering, of course, the sustainability topic. And they said, "Yes, of course, it's important for us." But and the big but was like they asked this year their customers saying, "Like, would you would you pay?" even if it's a small percentage, like 1% or something like this, more for our product if this would help, let's say, sustainability causes. And the by far the reaction was, I think in, in the high 90s of percentages, was no, they wouldn't. So this was something where I was a bit depressed, of course, after listening to that, because it obviously seems like the market itself, or let's say the market from a consumer side, will not repair this. Because, of course, everybody will drive his car till or his fuel or diesel car till it breaks down. And that's not like, um, okay, I may, I may have my part in that kind of climate change recovery while was getting rid of my old car and buying an electric one but that cost myself money and people do not want to spend money so do you think that the key to making this things better like you said in that area is coming from the investment side because investors are pushing this kind of development forward so the consumer has to in the end more or less comply to it I think it's a multifaceted uh, response that is required. Investment community will be a big part of it, but I think mm -hmm. regulations will be a big part of it as well. Um, 
we have uh, we have a kind of a carbon tax at the moment in that we have the EU ETS scheme, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, but we need a higher price in carbon and it's market-based at the moment, uh, but we need a higher price in carbon. And as the price of carbon increases, and it is starting to go up on the EU ETS, as it, as it increases, then the kind of decisions you're talking about uh, will make sense because the to your guests question to his customers or her customers it'll make it'll make no sense because actually uh, the sustainable products will be cheaper than the carbon intensive yeah. products yeah. you know and and that's what needs to happen and and the same happens uh, well the same is already in, in place today for electric vehicles uh, it, it costs far less to fuel an electric vehicle than to fuel a diesel one it costs far less to operate an electric vehicle uh, than a diesel one, uh, which reports, uh, or no, Consumer Reports issued a report in September showing that uh, in general electric vehicles, their maintenance costs are less than 50% the maintenance costs of an internal combustion engine vehicle. So maintenance is, you know, 50% or less. Uh, fuel is significantly less. It depends on the cost of electricity in your country and the cost of fuel in your country, but it's about a third less typically. Mm -hmm. uh, so the operations of them are far less. The, the, the issue with them is the upfront sticker cost. And yeah. obviously as technology gets better, the cost of electric vehicles and batteries is decreasing year on year. So that's an issue that won't be an issue in three, four years time. And the, the other thing is, you know, at a, at a consumer level, we're moving away from car ownership anyway. Uh, very few people these days go to a dealership and hand over 30 or 40 or 50,000 euros and drive out with a new car that they own completely 100%. Uh, very often it's a model of a lease or a, 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 a car loan or, you know, a rental. Uh, companies like Volkswagen and Volvo and others now have, an, they, they offer their customers the ability to go for a medium to long-term rental of the vehicle. So if you go to the, I, I, here in, I, I live in Spain, if I go to the Volkswagen site here in Spain, I can now get a, a medium to long-term rental of an ID3 for 350 euros, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's 350 euros I pay every month, similar to a car loan. I just hand over that 350 euros every month. The difference being, it allows me to drive, I think it's 12,000 kilometers a year, so 1,000 kilometers a month. Uh, if I want to go more than that, I have to pay more than the 350 euros. Yeah. But, you know, I typically drive 10,000 a year, so mm. it's fine for me. Uh, so you get, uh, for that 350, you get to drive uh, 1,000 kilometers a month. You get your maintenance covered, you get your road tax covered, you get your insurance covered, and you get management of any fines or tolls. You know, so uh, suddenly that becomes a very attractive option. Just one bill at, you know, the end of every month, or direct debit that goes out of your account every month, and, you know, you, you get this lovely new car, fully electric, and if you were to buy it and own it yourself uh, through a car loan, You'd probably be paying 350 to 400 a month on the loan every month um and that wouldn't cover the insurance or the maintenance you know uh, or the road tax so it, it it becomes very very attractive it wouldn't cover the the tolls or the or the um the the fines either you know so it becomes very attractive the only issue is you don't own it at the end uh, at the end of three or four years you give it back whatever the rental term is you give it back and you possibly go for a new one uh, but it's 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 a new model of um, operating with vehicles that is very attractive to the car manufacturers because uh, they get a regular income from the vehicle, which right now the incomes they're getting from vehicles is shrinking. Uh, if you if a car manufacturer sold a vehicle, a new vehicle in 2012, let's say they could expect over the lifetime of the vehicle to earn 30,000 euros from that vehicle in maintenance, in parts, in spares, in uh, repairs for crashes or whatever. Uh, that 30,000 30, euros per vehicle is shrinking now. So by now, by 2020, it may be 25 or 20,000, and it, it keeps getting lower. And it's getting lower because 
people are moving to electric vehicles. And as I said, the maintenance on those is about 50% or less than an internal combustion engine vehicle. So that's a big chunk of the change gone straight away. And it's another reason why the car manufacturers didn't want to be selling electric vehicles because they wouldn't make a lot of money from them. The That 30,000 is shrinking also because cars are getting smarter. So that you have lane assist built in, you have parking assist built in, you know, all these kind of things. So again, repairs, that, that amount is shrinking. Cars are crashing less because they're more intelligent. Uh, so, uh, and car ownership is is changing as well. People are buying fewer cars, and again, so the the number of those thirty thousands is reducing. So the 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 income that the car manufacturers is getting is falling from car sales. So now they're shifting to vehicle as a service. So as they shift to vehicle as a service, suddenly that figure starts to go back up again, because they're getting that 350 every month from each vehicle or more if people go for a higher vehicle, higher spec vehicle, or drive more or whatever it is. And it's guaranteed income. You know, it's, it's like in SAP, we're shifting from on-prem to cloud. It's a difficult change, but we're making it. And it, it's a different sales model, but it's it, it's one of guaranteed income. And it's, it's a change that's happening in lots of industries. The other huge difference, uh, and the other thing that makes it really attractive for car manufacturers to go for the vehicle as a service model is around the data. Because all these cars are connected vehicles. It's, it's, I don't know what the exact figure is now, but the last time I looked, it was about 80% of new vehicles sold sell with a SIM card built in. And it's probably a higher number now because it was a while ago since I looked. So these are connected vehicles. These are sending out all kinds of information about all the sensors in the vehicle. And we're increasingly adding more sensors to vehicles, to that lane assist and parking thing that I was talking about a minute ago. All the cameras that are cars are coming out with now, they're bristling with cameras, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All this data, the ownership of that data belongs typically to the vehicle owner. Who's the vehicle owner? Well, if you've bought the vehicle, it's you. If you're renting the vehicle from the car manufacturer, then it's the car manufacturer is the owner. And in the contract for the rental of that vehicle, there will be several clauses, no doubt, about data ownership, and it will stay with the manufacturer. And this is why it's hugely attractive for them to go for this model. But at the same time, you just made the hell of a petrol car ownership. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, for, for you and I, do you want to fork out uh, 30 or 40 or 50,000 euro for a new car, which is becoming, and I wrote a blog post about this, I call it the iPhoneification of the auto industry. You know, do our, our phones are becoming out of date faster and faster as, as more and more technology is added to them. And the same is happening to cars. Cars are becoming out of date faster and faster and faster. So if you purchase, let's say, uh, an Audi or a nice Volkswagen or something, and you're paying 40 or 50,000 euros for it new, if that's out of date in five years, you're writing off 10,000 euros a year for a car that you know will be out of date and it'll be hard to sell in five years' time. I, you know, I, so I, I, it, it, agree it's a difficult one. I agree with you in that aspect of car as a tool. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right because we need, um, I, I'm not, I'm believing not in the, I'm li not living in a big city. I'm living in the countryside. So I'm yeah. not having no access of mass transportation like subways or anything like this because the next big city is like 20 kilometers away. Um, so all the people living here and we are a huge percentage of population, we still need individual um, mobility even yeah. in the next decade. So I'm, I'm for this, I'm in a semi-rural area. Absolutely, We're a single-car family, but you know, it's it's exactly. There's no, there's no, there's very little mass transportation near here. Exactly. For for this, this absolutely makes sense. To be honest, I'm a little bit difficult conversation partner for for that because um, one of my big um, passions and so on are old cars. I own them. I, I re restore them and so on. So of course, nice. car ownership is a part of my life. So. Yeah, yeah. But as you said, concerning usage, concerning cars and, and mobility as a tool, you're absolutely right. But I want to come back to the Climate 21 topic yep. in that aspect, um, because we have, it's a little bit have been, it's have become quieter, but before COVID, we had a highly, a very loud discussion. And I was quite annoyed by this discussion because this discussion <laughs> was not really based on facts, in my opinion, about, for example, the typical tempo limit in Germany, which is not existing on at least on some part of the Autobahn. But it was, a, let's say, a discussion like the savior of the world or the, 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 the climate 
depends on if people are driving 130 or 140. Where I say bullshit discussion, because if you would have the facts, like what kind of um, of, 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 or how, how big the, the, the amount is in total and what you can like reduce with it, this is something which is almost, um, almost you, you can't forget it because I like to solve problems um, in the, um, in the row, like biggest to smallest. And so something like climate 21, that's my big hope for it is giving the transparency, like where are mm. the big levers? Where are the big things where we can do things that make sense, where we can do initiatives that make sense because we have the transparency and we can then base on facts and not on feelings or on ideology and so on. What can we do um, in a way to, 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 to make climate better by putting the right levers and not the wrong levels which in the end makes to something of a bad discussion makes or makes people resistant of it because they say hey that's not really helpful what's was discussed there um do you think this can help in that aspect to make the right decisions globally instead yeah, of based I mean, on ideology yeah absolutely i mean and uh, <laughs> there's a guy i know called um dennis howlett and uh, Dennis and I have been buddies for a long time. And uh, Dennis has uh, a very <laughs> funny expression where he says, you know, opinions are like asses. Everybody's got one. Yeah. And, and sometimes even more than one. I was, for the sake of the podcast, I, I was paraphrasing what Dennis says. He says it in, in a more um, uh, coarse way. But anyway... Yeah, you. Yeah, you can't base decisions on people's opinions. They have to yeah. be fact-based, and they have to be backed by science and numbers and data. Yeah. Obviously, twenty twenty shows know, this so obviously. Sorry, twenty twenty shows this so obviously. What you oh, said, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, big time, big time. It's crazy. I mean, what, what's happening? And I mean, I I, I tweeted yesterday. Um, or I, I retweeted a report of um, Angela Merkel uh, at a press conference where she was talking about Christmas and, you know, being careful over Christmas and watching out for your grandparents and things like that. And it was a very emotional speech. And, yeah. you know, kudos to her because, yeah. you know, she's absolutely right. And when you contrast the way she's dealt with the, the pandemic with mm -hmm. other politicians who have politicized it, it's just... It's 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 so disheartening to see the way some politicians have approached this versus the likes of Jacinda Ardern and or sorry Jacinda Ardern or um, Angela Merkel or some who have taken a very responsible attitude to it and have dealt with it extremely well. You know, history is not going to be kind to some of these people. Absolutely, absolutely. I hope history will be kind to us because um, I will steal now from some questions that you ask your guests <laughs> in your podcast um, because I liked sure. it very much. Um, we talked a lot about um, being optimistic or that we have basically the tools at hand to make things better. Maybe 2020, when you especially look at, at reactions at people, at how people react, especially in social media about concerning things that would make sense and you you can read a lot of reactions which to be honest make me so furious that i'm i want to go fully into social distancing to a lot of people <laughs> um are you optimistic for the future i am actually um i am because i've always been it, it's it's in my nature to be an optimist uh i guess maybe that's not entirely true um I I am an optimist now. I probably wasn't always. I seem to remember when I was in university, uh, it occurred to me that optimism is the only path through which you get things done. Mm -hmm. Pessimism is likely to lead to despair and throwing up your hands and going, we're not going to do it. So what's the point in even trying? Whereas if you're stupidly optimistic and naively optimistic, you will say, of course, we can move the sun 10 degrees to the left. All we need is a big yeah. enough rocket. Let's go make that rocket, you know? 
you know, you, if if you can, if you're an optimist, if you're a, a blind, naive optimist, you know, it's only through idiocy like that that you actually achieve things. If if you decide, I'm going to start a car company and I'll only make electric vehicles, you know, yeah. for example, or I'm going to start a rocket company and we're going to go to Mars, you know, mm. this kind of idiotic, stupid idea that is only only an insane person would try can only actually succeed and, and is only possible by being stupidly optimistic. And, and, and yeah. that's me. I, I'm completely naively optimistic. And it's because that's the only outlook that I can have that allows me to stay sane mm -hmm. <laughs> and allows me to get things done. And I just, you know, I, I just say, of course I can do that. And I just put my head down and do it because otherwise, you know, I would fall into despair if I thought I couldn't. So yeah, I'm very much I'm a glass half full person, uh, whether it's about my own work or whether it's about what's going on in the world or anything. I also look at the arc of history and I, I look at uh, uh, the news and the news is always horrendous because that's the news's job. The news's job is there to sell airtime or to sell eyeballs or whatever it is. And as a species, we are programmed to prioritize bad news. It's, mm. it's, in, it's, in, it's in our actual brain there. We're, we are programmed to highlight bad news and remember it. And we're programmed to forget good news because it's not as important. Uh, it's, it's a whole evolutionary thing. And so the, the the news media are aware of that and they play to it. And there's even an expression which says, if it bleeds, it leads. So it makes yeah. the headlines. Uh, whereas if you look, as I said, at historical data, uh, if you look at things like uh, the, the main indicators for quality of life, mm -hmm. whether it is... Um, Ironically, the number of people who've been vaccinated, that number is going, it's on an S-curve. And it's for vaccinated for things like polio, for you know things like TB, for things like uh, measles, mumps, rubella, all these kind of mm. things. Those number of vaccinations are going up and up and up. And consequently, our uh, quality of life is going up. Our um, life expectancy is going yeah. up. Uh, the number of, uh, the, the number of kids who die before the age of five is going way, way, way down. Uh, global literacy rates are going way, way up. Education standards are going way, way up. Uh, poverty is coming way, way down. So all the main indicators for quality of life over the last number of decades are all going the right direction. And you have to take a decadal view of these things. If you just look at the headlines from yesterday to today, you know, it, it that's it's similar to the outlook you have to have around climate. If, if you look at uh, yesterday here in Seville, it was 13 degrees centigrade. Today it's 16. So obviously the world is getting hotter, three degrees per day. You know, you can't take a, a short-term view like that. You have to take a longer-term view over years and decades to see actually how climate is evolving. And it's, it's similar around things like quality of life. Uh, and, you know, when you look at that, you can see we are orders of magnitude better off at a planetary level than we have ever been in the history of mankind. You know, we we are we are wealthier, we're better educated, you know, we have more access to resources, et cetera, et cetera, than any generation before us. And, you know, if we keep on this arc and we do things responsibly, and I've no doubt we will, mm. our children will have an even better life expectancy and quality of life than we do, and their children even better again, and so on into infinity. You know, the interesting thing is like people in my age, like in the early 40s and so on, we, we tend to glory. We, we are like our parents and grandparents. Since we are now having the four in the beginning, we start to glorify times that have, have been passed. And mm -hmm. we glorify maybe the 60s, 70s and 80s and so on. But talk to anybody who was a grown up there. You know, they say like, come on, these decades sucked. Yeah. Yeah. Big yeah, time. yeah, exactly. You Big had time. AIDS in the eighties, not exactly, an and then Cold War in the seventies, and so yeah. on, and um, and so on, and so on. So, so it's just like we have a kind of media exposure, like news first, now social media, which is so concentrating on hysteria and bad things, and so on. And all these people you meet now in social media and things like, and think like, are we that? Are we that bad? Do we suck that much? Mm -hmm. um, yes, but these people already exist before. You just did not meet them. Now with social media, you meet them. Yeah. So um, care for yourself where you look at. And I think this is a, I absolutely agree with you. Um, of course, we have our 
I'm not saying challenges because Sarah told me I'm not allowed to. I say problems. We have our problems we are solving with climate change and so on. But we start to have the tools and Climate 21 is one of them. Um, is there something that I haven't asked you yet in the last 40 minutes? You haven't asked me about my other podcasts. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I know in. of two. I know of two. What, what more are there? No, I just the two. Uh, oh, just so, the two. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I did. I, I alluded to it a couple of times. I, I do have the Climate Twenty One podcast. Uh -huh. That's in its infancy. I published episode two yesterday. I have six more episodes recorded, and I'm lining up a lot more really, really interesting interviewees. Uh, so that's that's you know that's going to take off. That's at the bottom of the S curve because it's just starting. But it. it uh, you know, if you are looking for it, go to any podcast application of choice. Type in Climate Twenty One or it is at www.climate21podcast.com because I suffer from a severe lack of imagination. Uh, plus, it's also good for search engine optimization more seriously. But the second podcast that we haven't talked much about is the Digital Supply Chain Podcast. So uh, I, through an accident of reorg, ended up in the supply chain organization in SAP. Uh, and... In there, I set up a supply chain or a digital supply chain podcast back in July of 2019. So it's been going on now 18 months. Uh, it's published over 90 episodes so far. It goes out uh, every Monday and Friday. So two episodes a week. The Climate 21 goes out every Wednesday. So yeah, I'm, I'm that's pushing a out huge three amount of content. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, again, it, the, the, the podcasts on supply chain have been really interesting, particularly, you know, the last 10 months that we've been through this pandemic because supply chains have been so impacted by this. Uh, so it's been really fascinating to see. Um, and uh, as you say, it's a, it's a lot of content. There's a great uh, 90 back issues there for people to go through. And as I say, it comes out every Monday and Friday. So there's a lot of great content. Uh, the, again, it's, it's, like the Climate 21, it's at www.digitalsupplychainpodcast.com. Again, lack of imagination, also search engine optimization. And also go to any podcast application of choice, type in Digital Supply Chain Podcast, and boom, up it'll come straight away. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's taking off big time. Uh, the number of downloads has increased tenfold since January. Yeah. And some of that is down to the increase in the output. So I... I I, I'm traveling less, obviously, so I'm able to concentrate on putting out more episodes than I was before. Uh, I also invested more in audio equipment, so the quality, the audio quality of the podcast has increased. Uh, but also, I'm spending more time on it, so I'm getting better interviewees. I've had on people like the uh, VP supply chain for Coca-Cola, uh, uh, Jeff Markey is his name, and I, you know, that was you know a month ago or two months ago at this point, and he was talking about rolling out end-to-end -end visibility for the entire supply chain of Coca-Cola globally. So that was a really interesting podcast. I had on uh, the VP supply chain for a company called Cascades. Uh, anyone in North America is probably familiar with Cascades. They're a big uh, paper company. They make uh, a lot of their product is toilet paper, for example. So obviously that was a, a topical a one. high in demand product around. in the last 12 months. Yeah, exactly. You know, so the, the, the shifts in the supply chain of, of toilet paper, you know, so lots of really interesting people. Uh, mm -hmm. Index Verke were on, um, you know, who else? L lots of big SAP customers have been on and then lots of great episodes. Uh, and it's not just customers, it's partners as well. And SAP execs as well from time to time. So uh, it, 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 it's it's been real fun for me hosting that and getting all these guests on and I'm, I'm doing live streams as well so I'm, I'm doing a live stream uh, well by the time you hear this it'll have been last Thursday so today actually this afternoon but I'm doing another 18 scheduled for next year uh, again it's, it's around supply chain but they're great fun the live streams are such fun because you get people on as guests and yeah. then you broadcast out on you know periscope slash twitter plus linkedin uh we'll try and do it on youtube as well but for now it's just linkedin and, and twitter simultaneously and you get people dropping in and dropping comments and in real time mm. and you respond to them and you know people go oh my gosh she's actually listening to me and talking back to mm. me that's a phenomenal and you you know when you start increasing the interactivity and the engagement like that it becomes such fun it's great yeah. I, i'm really enjoying that it's a, it's a great channel to do because um, I think there's no big difference to what we also do like on TechEd and so on where we have these kinds of live sessions. Um, but but why just do it 
in those occasions. Yeah. You can do this basically every week. And in that kind of improve very much your connectivity uh, to your audience and, and to, to your target group. Talking about connectivity. So I guess I've heard about LinkedIn. I heard about the podcast and so on from you. These are probably the best sources to connect with you. Or yeah, are there indeed. any other favorite places? Uh, you know, people can connect with me on pretty much any channel of their choice. Um, so tom.raftery at sap.com is my email. Uh, my Twitter is at Tom Raftery. My LinkedIn, I won't call out the URL. I'm sure you'll have it in the show notes there, Alex. Or, you know, just Tom Raftery is not a very common name, frankly. So you just go to uh, YouTube, or sorry, not YouTube, LinkedIn, type in Tom Raftery. Go to YouTube, type in Tom Raftery as well. You'll find me there as, as well. Uh, so wherever you want, you know, pretty much... Uh, you'll find me there feel free to message me you know connect with me send me comments questions whatever it is perfect tom has been really interesting thank you very much thank you alex thanks for inviting i me. hope you had uh, as much fun as i had um i wish you a beautiful end of december have a great Likewise. christmas time Likewise. with your people with your family and so on stay healthy and we'll see us again in the new year thank you I, I tell people to stay uh, stay safe and stay sane because you know it's sanity it's that funny is time. <laughs> a very important part of the moment definitely thank you very much have a great day thanks Bye -bye. Alex cheers bye bye